you want to pull out your Unfolding Grace sermon insert there, you'll see our sermon text, um, main point and outline on the inside there. So you can follow along with me in just a moment. I'm going to read our text. We are looking at the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. If you have a paper Bible, it likely says right above it, the New Covenant. That is the, the topic that we're going to be looking at this morning. So if you wouldn't mind, as is our custom here at New City, could you stand for the reading of God's Word from Jeremiah? Uh, again, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. And the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Today we are looking at the new covenant. From the outset, I'm just going to tell you what I want you to see is that the new covenant is not entirely new. That it is greater and that there are massive implications for you. The new covenant isn't entirely new. It is greater in every way because Jesus is greater and there are massive, massive implications for you, brother or sister. Now, also from the outset, I will tell you, we are going to do our best to get through this but since there are massive implications, since this is a greater covenant in every way than what we've seen in the scriptures up to this point, and because Jesus is greater and because this isn't entirely a new story, I want to tell you we won't cover everything in good enough detail. So I want to lay out some resources that might continue your study on this topic and also on an Old Testament survey. These three resources have been very near and dear to my heart and to Roger and his heart. So the first one. Uh, that these two are kind of seminary-like texts, so they're a little bit more. You're going to have to work a little bit more, but this one's my favorite. The Fulfillment of the Promises of God by Richard Belcher. This is a, a great book looking at the Old Testament story and how it connects into the New, exploring what we call covenant theology, looking at covenants, which we're going to do a little bit today. This book is very good and also specifically interacts with our dear brothers and sisters of different persuasions theologically, what we might call our Baptist brothers and sisters who see things a little differently than ours. He does so in a gracious way, loving way, but he wins. Um, so that's a good one, The Fulfillment of the Promises of God, an Explanation of Covenant Theology. Also a very good book written by a, an elder in our denomination, O. Palmer Robertson's book, The Christ of the Covenants, a little bit more accessible than this one. Uh, just looking at the Old Testament story, how God is a gracious God dealing with fallen, sinful, rebellious human beings through what's called a covenant. It's a great book, O. Palmer Robertson. Last but not least, one that I've taken many of you through, um, and this one deals specifically with 
the connection between the Old and New Testaments, the Old and New Covenant, and, and answering and asking the question, what do we do with the children? Um, and the book is called Children of the Promise, the biblical case for infant baptism. You have to forgive the, the graphic. Uh, it's a little dated. This book's by Robert Booth. I've done, I think, at least two, maybe three book studies on this in the New City community. It's very helpful, very accessible. This is readable by anyone, and it's, it's a great book. So if what I'm talking about today kind of is like, okay, I like that. I want to read more about that. Any of these three books would be a great start. I'll leave them up there between services. There are many more, but those are just three really good ones. <coughs> With that said, turning our attention now to the text and what God has for us this morning from Jeremiah 31, I want us to see that this new covenant talked about in Jeremiah 31 brings to fruition in the Lord Jesus Christ everything that was anticipated by former covenants. Does that make sense? All the former covenants, so right now you're thinking, okay, the promise that God made to the people in the garden, Genesis chapter 3, that there will be a seed from the woman who will come and crush the head of the devil. What about God's covenant, his relationship, his committing himself to Abraham, that from Abraham there will come a child, a seed, who will bless the nations. You're thinking about Moses and God's covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai and what what was that all about? And, and God promised a greater prophet, a greater Moses. King David, God commits himself to David and says, you're a man after my own heart. I'm going to make a covenant with you, commit myself to you. We're going to have a relationship. And that includes, David, one of your children will always be on the throne and have an everlasting kingship, an everlasting kingdom. All of those things see their climax. All of those things See the fruition in the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, ascended at the right hand of the throne of God on high. I want us to see how all of this Old Testament study we've been doing is, is heading uphill and it gets to the top and it's a person, his name's Jesus. If I had to summarize this in, in the form of a, a, a Bible passage, that's kind of my main point for you today. I don't know if I've ever had a main point just be a, a verse of scripture, but it would be 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20. For all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ, period. Any of God's promises, you pick them, where's their yes? In Jesus. And you experience them to the degree that you know Jesus and you're united to him by faith. For all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. That is why it's through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So, in order to examine how all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus, we're going to walk through this passage, the New Covenant, specifically looking at four promises, the main four promises of the New Covenant in Jeremiah 31. And I'm going to try to show you how those elements have been present in the Old Testament story up to this point. That's what I meant by it's not entirely new. I'm going to walk us through those four promises. Then we're going to walk right back through those four promises again and see how they're finding their fruition in Jesus. That he is the one, although they've been around in the old covenants, they were shadows, types, not quite as clear. But Jesus brings them all and applies them to us through the Holy Spirit. So those four promises should be on the right side of your sermon insert there. 
Uh, I've gotten these from these three books, and if you're just a good reader, you'll see them in verses 33 and 34. The four promises that the new covenant lays out for us that will be accomplished in the new covenant, in the lives of God's covenant people are these. One, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. That's the first promise of this new covenant. Secondly, I will be their God, they shall be my people. Third, they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Fourth and finally, I will forgive their iniquity and will remember their sin no more. Now, those four promises are very important, and we're going to get there and spend most of our time there, I hope. Um, But before we get there, that's verses 33 and 34. What's the deal with verses 31 and 32, which come before that? Well, let's walk through that. This will help us get some context. Verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Some important things to remember here. You see that word new covenant, that's important. I've already mentioned it in our time together. You should know that that's the only place in the Old Testament that phrase appears. This is the only location of new covenant in the Old Testament. Now, that doesn't mean the principles aren't elsewhere. It's clear that the prophet Ezekiel, who's writing and prophesying at the same time as Jeremiah, knows this. In in chapter 36 of Ezekiel, he says all of these things. He just doesn't use the word new covenant. Now, it's also important for us to know, what do you think when you hear the word new? You probably think brand new. New present, new car, new clothes. We're coming up on Christmas. You're going to get something you haven't had before, likely in a box, and you open it. It's brand new. This phrase, new, it's the, the Hebrew word karash. It can mean that, but as Brown, Driver, and Briggs, the Hebrew lexicon, it is the, the seminal work on Old Testament Hebrew, tells us this word means renew, repair. Not brand new, like, we. wow, all of this is new content, and it's coming out of nowhere. God's switching it up. He hasn't been like this before. That's not what we're talking about. This is not a hard break from the story that comes before it. That's why we've been spending a year in the Old Testament. This is a new covenant in that it's being renewed, repaired from that which comes before it, and it is better and greater, as we'll see in a few moments. Also, in these opening verses, notice with whom the covenant is made. The house of Israel and the house of Judah. We're going to be constantly going back and forth between this kind of individual implications for me as a single person, but also holding in tandem that God's making this covenant with a people. It's a y'all reality, a family affair to keep in mind. Now, The house of Israel and the house of Judah, from Jeremiah's perspective, is the people of Israel and Judah, the two kingdoms. The the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, they're, remember, in exile. Looking ahead to the time when God's going to deliver them from exile, bring them back to their land, and they'll be a people again. This new covenant, when Jesus comes along, the fulfillment of the new covenant, he says, yes, it is with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And guess what? It's Gentiles too. Y'all are Israel. Because Jesus is the new Israel. Y'all are the temple because Jesus is the temple. But again, we should be thinking as this, this people is in exile in Babylon, 
They're remembering the covenants, Genesis 3.15. They're remembering Noah, Abraham, Moses, and Israel, David, and this promise. And, and they're like, well, is God going to do it? Is God going to be faithful? Is he going to, to, to save us? Where is he? Maybe the other gods are more strong. We know that not to be the case. Jeremiah is with the people in exile saying, uh-uh, listen to what God just told me. He's going to make a new covenant. And it's going to be amazing. He is going to be faithful. Again, as I just mentioned, they're leaning forward. They're expecting to be delivered and brought back into the land, that little sliver of land called Israel in the Middle East. But we know that it was never about just that land. When Jesus comes along and says, the new covenant was always about me, I actually purchased the new covenant with my blood, he informs us that it's never about Jerusalem. It was never about just Israel. It's about the globe. The whole world is ours, brothers and sisters. Jesus, upon being resurrected gloriously from the grave, conquering sin and death for us, sends out his people to all nations and says, go, therefore, make disciples. Let's take over the world. That statement, actually, that I just said got many of our brothers and sisters murdered throughout the years. In short, it was never just about the land. It was about the whole land, about Jesus' mission to expand as a light to the nations and consume all corners of the globe with the good news of Jesus. And the book of Hebrews tells us they knew that. The Old Testament saints knew it. Abraham knew it. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that they, the Old Testament believers, had always desired a better country. That is, a heavenly one. And because of that, therefore, God was not ashamed to be called their God. Okay. That's kind of laying some, some foundation for us here at the, the outset. But let's now get into these four promises. The four promises that God will accomplish in the lives of his new covenant people. And throughout the remainder of our time, when we, we mention, and in this text, it mentions kind of the, an old covenant, and then there's going to be a new covenant that comes. Well, which one is the old covenant? Because I just went through Genesis 3.15, Noah, Abraham, Moses and Israel, David. Which one of those is he talking about? It becomes clear for us in verse 32. The old covenant is the covenant through Moses, with the nation of Israel at Sinai. That becomes what the scriptures juxtapose back and forth. The covenant with Israel, the law given at Sinai, and the new covenant. He tells us that. Not like the covenant, the old covenant, that they broke when I brought you out of the land of Egypt, though I was their husband. Not that one. I'm going to make a new one, a greater covenant, with the new Israel, through the new temple, through the Messiah, his name is Jesus Christ. So, those four promises, let's review them again. Get your eyes on them so you, you see these. I will put my law within them, write it on their hearts. I will be their God, they shall be my people. They shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. First, I will write their, my law, God's law, within them, and it will be on their hearts. I want you to see that it's not new in the, in the brand new terms. No one hearing Jeremiah say this would be like, oh, huh, that's, that's new, interesting thought. It was always this way. Book 5, Deuteronomy, tells us in the famous Shema, which means hear or listen. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with what? All your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Don't stop there, though. What's the next phrase? The promise that God will write His words on your heart. We're not even out of the first section of Scripture and God's saying, it's about your heart. I'm after your heart. I'm not after, I'm not concerned with just external obedience. I want your loves. And I want my will deep in your heart. That's how it was always meant to be. It's actually in the old. We'll talk about why and where the breakdown is in a moment. But that's what I want you to see. Remember, we're walking through the promises, seeing how they're actually all present in the old. Second, I will be their God. They shall be my people. This one is just softball status. It's literally a quote from Exodus. Exodus 6, verse 7. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. Oh, get this. And you shall all know me, the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Again, that's Exodus 6, 7, for those of you note-takers. So this promise that God will be their God, they shall be his people, is true of the old covenant. It's true of Israel. But again, where's the breakdown? Something goes awry. We'll get there in a moment. Third and finally, or not, not third and finally, sorry. Third, they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Seen in the old. The result of God being their God and they being his people, as I just quoted to you, is that they would know God. I could quote to you again the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. I could quote to you again Exodus 6, 7. I'll give you another one. Deuteronomy 4, verse 35. To you, my covenant people, to you it was shown that you might know the Lord God. God's revealing himself. The, the very existence of Scripture is God revealing himself to us so we would know him. That was the case with the old covenant. That is the case with the people in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the way through. Fourth and finally, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Again, I want you to see that this is a present reality in the old covenant. That's because God deals with his people graciously from beginning to end. We're not talking about an Old Testament external obedience earned salvation in the old and then God gets nice and gracious in the new. We've been hitting that over and over again throughout this series. The result of God being their God, they being his people, was that they would know God and the whole relationship was built upon God's mercy and forgiveness. You guys were less churched, I would ask you where you think this verse comes from, but I think you know it. And we preached on it in this series, so I guess the odds are against me. But hear these words. The Lord passed before, I won't tell you who, this person, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's covenant love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Where do you think that is? I think John, Ephesians, 
That's Exodus. That's the old. We're being told that back then God was merciful, gracious, slow to anger. He dealt with his people because he's good and forgiving. He tells us he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. You can't get through the opening chapter of Leviticus. I know it's a hard book to read for us. It's kind of strange and there's a lot of blood. But verse 4 of chapter 1, you're talking about the intro paragraph. It's God laying out a way for the people through a burnt offering to be atoned, to be forgiven of sin. They place their hand on the animal, kill the animal, atoned. So, by way of reminder, all of these promises that we see in the new don't come out of nowhere. They're not brand new surprises to the people of God. They're present because this is who God is. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, dealing with us through covenant love, steadfast love. His desire is to write His will on our hearts and that we would obey Him. His desire is to be our God and we be His people. He forgives iniquity. But what went wrong then? Why is God's people in Babylon, slaves to Nebuchadnezzar. Why didn't the old covenant work, so to speak? Why was the old covenant, again, we're specifically talking about with Israel at Sinai as a nation and all of those, those laws and things, why was that not sufficient? Well, friends, time will not permit a long discussion on all of these things. I'd encourage you to any of these three resources, but this will suffice. The old covenant did not carry with it the power to fulfill the requirements. And the old covenant did not carry with it the power to meet the demands and appropriate the promises. For that, something greater was needed. Moses, as great of a leader as he was, did not have the power as mediator to bring about the things he was proclaiming. Instead, a new covenant was needed. And that was always the plan. Moses was a type. He was a shadow. He was just a, a picture of something greater to come. He was a servant in God's house, as Hebrews 3, verse 5 tells us. We needed the son of the house. A good follow-up to this sermon would be the book of Hebrews, which is Jesus is greater. Jesus is better. And they, he just systematically, whoever wrote or preached, spoke Hebrews, lays out for us all the ways in which Jesus was better. Okay, how are we doing on time? Not good. Okay, so that's the promises of God laid out for us in the old. My whole point in showing you that was just that this is not brand new. This is not out of nowhere. It's not a, oh great, throw it in the trash and let's replace everything anew with this new covenant. Illustration or not, we're going to go for it. Um, many of you guys uh, might know that I had uh, knee surgery three weeks ago on Tuesday. Not a knee replacement. That would be the, what I'm talking about. Throw out the old, give me a new knee. Completely brand new. I had arthroscopic knee surgery, stitching up broken things, scraping out cartilage, but it's still my knee. Still my knee, but greater. It no longer hurts when I walk. Some of, I'm still recovering, so most of you are like laying hands on me and praying as I go down this stage every time because you're like, he's going to go down. I'm almost there, 
but coming along slowly. It's still my knee. The, all the pieces of my knee have been there in the old, before surgery, that they are now. It's just renewed, repaired, better, and greater in every way. <laughs> Should have thought about this. The illustration breaks down because I'm going to need a second knee surgery. I'm still kind of in the old covenant here with this knee, but we'll get there eventually. What I want us to do is to see now how Hebrews 8 specifically tells us that the new is so much better. It is greater because Jesus is greater, because Jesus actually fulfills all the requirements, and by faith we get to lay hold of it. The new covenant was needed because the old was obsolete, could not accomplish what it demanded. The new covenant does. So now let's run back through these four promises of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 34, and I want you to see Jesus. That's it. I want to get out of the way and show you Jesus. So first, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. Friends, this speaks of the Holy Spirit's work at Pentecost and following. Jesus, upon dying on a cross as our sin substitute and rising triumphantly from the grave for your justification, he then ascended to the throne of God and he sits at the right hand of the throne of God. And along with his Father, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit upon his people. We have the Spirit from Pentecost, Acts 2, if you're a note taker, and on. God the Spirit's work was then and is now at least threefold, fourfold, to cause spiritual life where there was no life before. The Spirit's work, because Jesus and his Father sinned God the Spirit upon God's covenant people, was to create spiritual life where there was none previously. We call this the new birth. You can read about it in John chapter 3. If you happen to be reading theological works, it's the word regeneration, new life, 2 Corinthians 4, Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, the ones in which you once walked, but God made you alive. You dead, God made you alive. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. But then secondly, the Spirit then allows us, helps us see the beauty of Jesus Christ recognize the glory and the power of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's called repentance and faith. Once we're brought to life by God, the Spirit doesn't stop there. It's not a laissez-faire action. I just kind of wound you up and now you're good to go. He gives us faith. He helps us lay hold of the gospel and believe in Jesus. Now, thirdly, the Spirit, because of this, I'll write my law within you. That's where we're getting to. My, my law within you, it'll be on your heart. The Spirit then frees us from the power of sin. We do still have a confession of sin every week. We still do have war against our old self. But friends, because of the Holy Spirit's work, we can resist sin. The very blood of Jesus Christ that was shed to forgive our sin is the same blood that through the Spirit's help grants us the strength to conquer our sin. You can say no now. That was not the case before the Spirit. You can grow in Christ-likeness with the Spirit's help. Yes, forever imperfect until glory. But you're no longer a slave. You've been set free. 
You can, to use the, the, the statement of Willard that we often say in the New City community, you can learn from Jesus how he would live our lives if he were we. That is actually possible now because of the Spirit. Finally, the Spirit also helps us obey. He gives us the desire to obey. That's the, that's the heart piece. I'm going to write it on your heart. I'm going to put it within you. The will of God, friends, is now written in our hearts. And if you are a believer, united to Jesus by faith, you have a desire to obey. Yes, it's got some ups and downs. Yes, you hit some road speed bumps along the way. You, you hit some hiccups as you're walking through this life. But because of the Spirit's work in our lives, friends, a work with which we put in effort, we want God. We want Jesus. We like Him because He likes us. It's a relationship. That's the newer aspect of it. Because of Jesus' work accomplishing our salvation and sending the Spirit, putting the law within us, we can now obey. We can now love. We can now follow and see Jesus. It is certainly a work of the Spirit, though. That's why it is all of grace. Secondly, I will be their God. They shall be my people. I'm just going to fly through this one real quick. This is simply, again, a reality that is ours in Jesus because of the work of His Spirit in Acts chapter 2 and beyond. When you saw Jesus, believed in Him, that was the Spirit's work in your life, that is the new covenant invading your heart, you became not only a Christian, you were not only united to Jesus, you were made a family member. You were made a people. And God is our God, we are His people. The church is the Israel of God, Galatians 6, 16. The church is the temple of God's dwelling, Ephesians 2, 12 and following. We, to use the words of Jesus' good buddy, Peter, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for God's own possession. That's not America. That's not any other country. That's the church. That's you. Part of a family that's ransomed from every people, tribe, language, and nation. When you came to faith in Christ, friends, you were born again by the Spirit. You were given faith and repentance, but you were made a part of the church. God's family. God's people. That's mind-blowing, too, by the way, when you think about it. Rescued, made a part of a family, and now we can know Him. He's going to be my third promise of the new covenant. They shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Look, at, look again, it says here, No longer, this is verse 34, shall, you, shall each one teach his neighbor and each his, his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. So, does this mean that in the new covenant, in Jesus, teachers are not needed? No. I hope not. I'm out of a job. I am trying to work myself out of a job because I won't be needed when, when glory comes, but there is an already not yet aspect. This does not mean there's going to be no teachers, but instead it's talking about quantity. You notice that? No longer will you have to say to, to one another, know the Lord. Know the Lord. You don't know the Lord. You, you need to know the Lord. The new covenant is better because in the old, that is, the old covenant with God and Israel, there, were only a, a, there was only a small remnant of faithful people. 
if we're being honest, you feel that when you read the Old Testament, right? Most of them stink. There's just a few. God uses that word. He preserved a remnant in the Old Covenant. That's not to conclude, we should not conclude there was no faithful believers in the Old Testament. There were, but it is a small remnant, a small group compared to that which is now being expected in the new. It's not going to be like most of them don't know the Lord. There's just going to be a small few that know the Lord. No, no, Jeremiah's perspective is saying there's a new covenant coming. When we get there, the group is going to know the Lord. All of us are going to know the Lord. It's not going to be a small group. Um, if you're note takers, we see this in the old. Justification, sanctification language is used by David in Psalms 32, 51. 30, 32 and 51. God tells Elijah, remember Elijah the Tishbite, uh, the mountain stuff, fire, crazy uh, Baal worshipers and that, that, that little battle there. God told Elijah that there were 7,000 in Israel who'd remained faithful and not bowed the knee to Baal. That's cool, right? There were a lot more than 7,000 in Israel. The point is, only 7,000 did not wander off and worship other gods. And then by the time of Elijah, when he calls down the fire, wipes out the, the, the Baal prophets, Elijah is said to be the last one faithful. And an entire nation, Daniel, the other, other prophets we see towards the close of the Old Testament scripture are faithful. There's a, there's a remnant of true believers, but the majority had rebelled against the Lord and were under the curses of covenant disobedience. Deuteronomy 29. The new covenant, friends, is gloriously different. It's no longer a small group of faithful amongst a, a huge, large, global church that doesn't know the Lord. No, no, not at all. It's different. We will know the Lord. The group will sincerely devote themselves to Jesus and love him. Yes, we're going to be imperfect until we get to heaven, but the covenant people of God will be made up of those who have affections for Jesus and know him in a real and personal way. Does that make sense what I meant by quantity difference? Jeremiah is saying this, we're no longer going to be a small band of faithful people telling everyone else in church to know the Lord. Come on. You definitely don't know the Lord. You need to know him. Now the group will know us. All of us will know the Lord. Side note, this gets us to the real practical question about what to do with the kids. Does this mean that in this new covenant, because all of them will know the Lord, that the Lord has now somehow kicked out the children of the covenant, which is new and greater and better in every way, don't have time to go through this so please read this blue book here children of the promise but the answer is no the new covenant is not synonymous with the elect there is an ongoing already not yet piece of this children are still included in the covenant with God because they've always been a part of the covenant of God this one is greater in that we will all know the Lord and to that end, shepherd our children unto the promises of God, unto faith and trust in Jesus. And that's how the kingdom of God has gone from one generation to the next. So children still receive the covenant sign of entrance into the faith. That is why we baptize children. I would 
draw your attention not only to this book, Children of the Promise by Robert Booth, but also a couple weeks back, a few weeks back now, Roger spent the entire sermon time on a sermon as to why children are included in the covenant and why we at New City baptize both children of believers as well as adults upon profession if they have not yet been baptized. I would just point you back to that sermon. You can find it on our website or podcast. Okay, lastly, landing the plane as we go to the table. This fourth new covenant promise is I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This is beautiful. Again, the book of Hebrews reminds us that in the old, this broke down because the blood of animals was not sufficient to cover human sins. Something more was needed. It's even implied in the old. How often did they have to sacrifice animals? Repeatedly, at least every year on the Day of Atonement, if not more, through the various sacrifices. You still see God is loving and gracious. He forgives sin, but the old wasn't enough. Animals are not going to cut it. The blood of bulls and lambs could not sufficiently cover sin, but there was one who could. The words of John the Baptist when he lays eyes on him for the first time, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Very God of very God. The suffering servant of Isaiah 53, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And again, to quote Peter, 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. Know then that you were ransomed, that's redeemed, bought, purchased, covered. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious Blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus was the sin-atoning sacrifice for your trespasses, for my trespasses. He became sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. We are forgiven, free, and restored because sin has been conquered and covered through Jesus And now he has sent his spirit into the lives and hearts of believers so we can now love and obey him. The new covenant is greater because Jesus is greater. Jesus is better than bulls. Jesus and his sacrifice better than all of the other sacrifices. Jesus and us as the church is better than all of the types and shadows that we read about in the old. Friends, where do we go from here? Well, just go back through the four promises and say mine. That's our application. We have the Lord's will written on our hearts because of the Holy Spirit. We can know and follow and love Jesus. Mine. We are the people of God. You're not to be isolated individual island Christians. You are a part of the family. Mine. Take that to yourself. We can know the Lord. We let that wash over us. It's just Christian stuff. Words, 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 Christian-y things. The Spirit leads us in our study of God's Word so we can grasp everything for life and godliness. Friends, you can know God. That's amazing. Don't 
ever let that get old. But I know I do. Why? Because my study of God's word takes a back burner to my schedule, my kids, my snooze button. Oh, friends, we're just numb to the beauty that we can know the Lord at that point. We're satisfied with, with mud pies in the slum when Jesus is offering us a holiday at the sea. C.S. Lewis, not Taylor, but I wish I could take credit for it. Friends, that's amazing. Last but not least, we're forgiven. I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. It is that, and because of that, we come to the table. The elements that we're going to hold in our hand, bread representing the body of Jesus and wine representing his blood, is preaching to us that Jesus has cast our sins as far as the east is from the west. Remembers them no more. He sees them and knows them, but he says, not you. That's not you anymore because of my son. Friends, our words of institution are going to come in a few moments from Luke chapter 22, where Jesus looks back on this passage and says, the bread and the wine represent me and my blood that purchased the new covenant. The gospel of Jesus Christ, his blood, is the new covenant purchased for all who would trust in him alone for salvation. And so if that is you, you are welcome to the table. This is not a table for perfect people, but a, a table for people who see Jesus and say, I love him and I want him, as imperfect as I am. If that is you, if you've been baptized into the family of God and are trusting and resting in Jesus alone for salvation, I'm encouraging you in a few moments to come to the table. Don't come to the table if you're still not sure about Jesus, still investigating his claims. Withhold from the table if you are in willful conflict with another Christian and you haven't gone out of your way to try to restore that relationship, I just encourage you to wait. But if you are trusting in Jesus, as imperfect as you are, this is a means of grace for you. Come and by faith, lay hold of Jesus. Remind yourself of the new covenant. I'm going to pray for us. Those who are serving the table would go take your stations as I pray. Here at New City, we'll exit your rows from the outside, go receive your bread and either red wine or white grape juice and then return to your seats through the middle and wait. We'll partake together. Let's pray. God, you are good. <coughs> Lord, you have purchased for us the promises of the new covenant. I pray that we would be amazed, blown away afresh at all that you have done for us in Jesus. Thank you for Jeremiah's words, Lord, written a few hundred years before Jesus comes, talking about his work on our behalf. Lord, help myself. Help my brothers and sisters in Christ here today lay hold of the promises that you have for us in the new covenant as we come to your table now. Encourage our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray all of this. Amen.